I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that progressive politics can still change the world. I'm your host, Stephanie Lloyd, and today we're going to be helping you shake off those post-bank holiday blues with a great episode from our archives. To get us ready for her keynote speech at Saturday's Progress Annual Conference, we're going to be going back to listen to our interview from last year with Jess Phillips, MP, and it's a double throwback because you'll also be hearing the dulcet tones of our old presenter and deputy editor, Connor Pope. Also, if you're yet to secure your ticket for Progress Annual Conference, then you're in luck. It's going to be this Saturday, the 11th of May, between 10am and 5pm in London in TUC Congress House. And it's going to feature speeches from the absolute hero that is Jess Phillips, who's telling everybody as is at the moment, the MP for just getting things done and changing the world, Stella Creasy, our fantastic MEP, Seb Dance, uh, Stephen Bush and the comedy gold that is Aisha Hazarika. Obviously we've got our very own chair, Alison McGovern and lots, lots more in terms of policy debate, discussion on really key issues like immigration and how we can fight the far right. To claim your special podcast listener discount, go to our website, progressonline.org.uk. Just click on the event on the homepage and then use the code POD19 to get £5 off your tickets. That's POD19. Enjoy the show and we really look forward to seeing you at conference. A few days ago, Jess, you posted a photo to Instagram of you and your friends balancing after eights on their faces <laughs> with the caption after eight game. Now, I'd never heard of this game before. They're the little chocolate things if people aren't quite sure what I mean. But could you explain what that game is? It is the best game ever. Uh, it is essentially, it's, it's very hard to explain. Basically, you put an after eight mint on your forehead and it's, it sort of <laughs> sticks, especially if it's quite sweaty and or it's a bit hot and it's a bit sticky because they're if very you thin. had one or maybe two drinks Don't, yeah a couple, you had a fruit-based a drink definitely had some drinks after eight is the perfect 
consistency don't try it with you know sort of like a Reese's cup or anything it, it won't work because <laughs> it's because yeah. it's thin. digestive it's thin and it's light that's the beauty yeah. of an after eight minutes so you put it on your forehead and you basically have to like scrunch up your face like you're gurning like you're les dawson <laughs> until it falls into your mouth but there's a very precarious moment when it is sort of on your cheek balancing and then you've got to try and get it in your mouth so you sort of like like a cat like <laughs> trying to get it into your mouth. So, so for, li- for listeners there who couldn't see the face that Jess was doing, she was trying to lick her own cheek. Yeah, um. yeah that's essentially, and it's just incredibly funny to watch your friends do it. Now, you can add an element of competition to the After Eight game. Um, I prefer just to each right, person... Who can do it quickest? Who can do it quickest, essentially. Right. We do. We all put them at the same time but then you don't get to see the beauty right, right, you're, t- right, you're just yeah. concentrating on your own game yeah um whereas the fun really is watching your friends look ridiculous uh, <laughs> and taking so, pictures for your insta and basically yeah. taking pictures from my instagram which the biggest pickup i noticed was from uh, the mp lucy powell yeah. saying is that your kitchen it looks really lovely and i thought <laughs> that, that's the, i did the, think that the, to be fair when i saw it the isn't picture. my kitchen it's my it's my friend amy's kitchen <laughs> well done, amy. Uh, yeah, she, amy has an amazing kitchen She's always got the best work done in her house. There we go. Alison, you hate yeah. all sorts of organised fun, including Christmas quizzes I mean, and general, general election name. campaigns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you ever play any games like this? No. None whatsoever. I mean, if what's you, the point? If you were at Jess's house for dinner and she brought out the after eights and asked you to play the game, would you? Well, okay, Jess and I have had dinner <laughs> quite a few times. I think she would. <laughs> The thing is, right, I hate games, but there's another thing that is that I'm very competitive, mm. quietly. I mean, it's not obvious, is it? But like, <laughs> so I think if go did, I would. You like sport. That's a game. Yeah, but that's like... That is <laughs> sport. 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 sport is a game. Sport is it? It's sports. games at school. <laughs> Sport's not a game. It's very, very serious. <laughs> Um, well, you know, with the kind of pivot to video and social media, perhaps the Progressive Britain podcast could stretch out into doing some sort of after eight game challenge. I would no, be up no, for I that. No, I can't cope with I've that. Got oh, definitely. I've got an idea. The podcast live at Progressive Britain <laughs> Political <laughs> Weekend. At Progress Political Weekend. Yeah, yeah you yeah. can do, do that. that. You could definitely do the after eight game. It's like a mess element that I can't cope with. Yeah, you definitely get tram lines. Yeah, I can't. Of, I can't. Um, the OCD moves just like I can't. And when we played it on Saturday... I mean, nobody cared and they were on there for like hours afterwards. And, <laughs> and it's just like everybody was just accepting the fact that everybody had just dark chocolate, chocolate lines down <laughs> their faces. Nobody, like as if that was natural. It's totally normal. Yeah. Maybe you need to play this, Steph. No. Maybe it'll be like therapy. Stephanie, you'd heard of it. Um, I had heard of it, yeah. I mean, it's a well-known game. I'm not quite sure where you've been, Connor. (laughs) But but no, yeah, there's there's the OCD element to this that I can't cope with. But I do, I am a big fan of games. Like, I love a board game. game, So what games do you play after after a boozy dinner? After a boozy one is different, right? You don't play a board game then. You don't play a board game after booze, or at least you have to make it like a drinking game. So, like, drinking game articulate, lethal. I don't. I don't need a game to make me drink. No. So that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> if anything, I need to, to like stop, stop me, me from, from drinking. Yeah. Much, yeah. But no, I love a good board game. Monopoly is my favourite, but I have been known God. to just like literally throw it across the room if I. I mean, it's a horrendous game. It's boring. It is, and I didn't like it though when they brought out the little card machine ones. I was like, nope, this is too modern. They I want, have I a want card machine. Mon- they have a card machine wow. Monopoly. I was like, no, stop it. Give me my banknotes. How else can I cheat? 
Like, no. It's like, yeah, £200 I quite for Articulate is a great game. It's an exceptional game, game though. Exceptional What game. is Articulate? It's basically like Fast and Furious. I feel like I'm it's pitching like, yeah. to, to sell Articulate <laughs> to the mass market. It's like a Fast and Furious describing game. Yeah, so it's like Pictionary, but you've got to describe, describe it. it. Right. And you've got but to get you can't as many say, as possible. You can't say, obviously, what the word is. And you've got to do it as many as possible in a quick amount of time. And then there's this one moment where you have to everybody can play and the other team can steal it so you have to make your description really specific to the person you're doing it to you're doing it to your husband yeah. like you can say like you know do you remember that evening back <laughs> November 84 <laughs> yeah. so, but the best thing we would play me and my family are obsessed with board games right and at Christmas they always come out and my poor little tiny stepdad has no interest in them whatsoever. Oh, but he is so lovely, he will play it. But the, he's also, one thing he's not known for is speed. So when we play Articulate, me and my brother basically want to like kill each other. And then like my mum attempts to get really involved. But then my stepdad will be like, we'll be like, right, go. And he's like, okay, right. Mm. So yeah, oh, don't know that one. It's like, and everyone's like oh, screaming no. at me. I would, like, I would definitely, that person would be disowned from my family. Literally, I'm like, but he's too cute. You can't not do it, but you never want him on your team. Have you Poor seen, little love. So as much as I hate games, I was on holiday with some friends of mine uh, last year and they had that thing where you, if you've got a phone. Heads up. And is that what it's heads called? Up yeah, heads, heads up is brilliant. Oh yeah. my God, it's amazing. So, despite myself, I was very into it. <laughs> we, can we kind of explain that Okay, a bit, so then? heads up is basically this thing <laughs> where. It was Ellen Jenner. Generous's game. You get, she designed it. Is that, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you get an app on your phone and you hold your phone at your forehead and the app basically says a word or a song or something like that. And the people that you're Shreds, playing with... Charades, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, the, it's the fag paper game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with yeah, a yeah, phone. Yeah, but, with with a phone. but then when you, when you say it, right, right. You, can, you then flick the phone oh. and you have to do as many as you can. And also, it videos it you rec- doing it. Yeah. It records you it doing videos it. videos the person acting out the charade. And so they look can, ridiculous. If you want to be really niche, you can make your own deck. So, like, for free, you can make your own little ones. Yeah. So you can you, just... you, you've got really into this, haven't you? I really well, I like... Got, I've, I've made my own deck. Yeah, I've really? totally made yeah. my own ones. It's I'm really into games, but we yeah. like to play it, like like sort of the Rizzler game, famous people game, but quick fire, yeah. but yeah. with people we know. Yeah. So, essentially, we can basically act out people, boys, my friend Alex has gone out with. <laughs> yeah. So, we make our own deck yeah. and literally... All everybody puts is people my friend Alex has gone out with. <laughs> we all just act out various things. That's she's gone out with. I could do, I could do this in our house. We do it with like economic forecasting models or something. You would. Yeah. You would. I can, I can imagine you, yeah. spreadsheets we have known. You playing a game where it's like you've got one billion pounds to add to any department's budget. Where will it do the most good? Yeah, exactly. Childcare. The only two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I already got the answer. Done. Yeah. The, only, the only two games I ever play are Trivial Pursuit. I love that. Oh, it but is my, cracking. My Twitter picture is me getting angry at being asked a question about Doctor Who because I hate Doctor Who. Oh, good man. Yeah, it's awful. I despise Doctor Who. The other game that I, I, oh, I always play with my or used to play with my friends was uh, you go around and try and work out if if a film was being made of your life, who would play you. Uh, but I refuse to play that anymore after. What? That's the greatest game because a film may be made of my life. And so we have been discussing this all weekend. My husband wants to be played by Wesley Snipes very specifically when he was in Demolition Man. And my, my nine-year-old son specifically wants Will Smith a la when he was in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air right. years to play Excellent. him. I, I think there's, there's only so many times you can hear people say that, Connor, you'd definitely be Steve Buscemi. That, <laughs> and then it's like, there's no so, fun left in this so game. So I once, I once sort of played this game slash had this conversation with Tom Watson and Gordon Brown 
in a like in a quiet moment where we were talking about something else. And it was really funny because I think it was Tom said to me, who would play you, Ali, in the film of this? And I sort of just like laughed. And then like we looked up and we both looked at Gordon, who obviously has been played in several films, looked at each other and both just said, David Morrissey. <laughs> Tom would definitely be that one, Edgar, what's his name? The one from, um, oh, what's that one where the zombies? <laughs> Don't look to my mum overnight. Are you good at articulating? <laughs> Honestly, I am definitely losing my mind at the moment. I can't yeah. remember anything. You know, uh, Shaun of the Dead. No, no. Oh, really. anyway. Edgar Wright was the director of oh, that. Oh, right. Okay. Well, oh, the, Nick Frost. That's the one, yeah. Right. Okay. In fact, I think we probably need to leave that conversation. great revelation. But we've got a brand new message for you coming up next. So do listen along. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, it's Alison McGovern here at Chair of Progress. I've just got a short message. If you're enjoying the Progressive Britain podcast so far, there are three things that you can do which would really help us out. The first thing is to subscribe to our podcast so that you always get the latest episode. The second thing is to rate us. Tell us what you think. And the final thing is to leave us a little review. We love to hear what people think and the best ones get read out on the review show on a Friday. And if we really like what you've got to say, you could even win a progress mug. So don't forget, subscribe, rate, review. Writing in The Independent over the weekend, Harriet Harman said that successive generations of feminists have won the argument for change, but the battle still is to make that a reality. One area where there is a real danger of progress being reversed is on domestic violence. Plans to take refuges out of the welfare system puts funding in danger and four in ten refuges could close as a result. What does that mean for the way that we help victims of domestic violence in this country? And how has this come about? Jess, you worked for Women's Aid before entering Parliament, which campaigns to end domestic violence. I was wondering if you could just start us off by explaining how the refuges are currently funded and and what are the changes? I mean, part of the problem with this change is it's relatively complicated and so can be slipped through without much controversy because the way that refuges are funded is not from one 
easy to understand pot. It used to very much be that refuges were funded through their local councils supporting people budgets. All refuges would be able to apply for support money through the supporting people funding stream, which was created by the last Labour government. And it wasn't just refuges that were in that. That's all sorts of supported living, whether that's for people leaving prison, care leavers, people with learning difficulties, elderly people, all had access to this fund that was specifically about supported living. Now, over the past few years, that has been degraded a lot so that councils don't, very, very few of them, fund anywhere near what they would have done even two years ago, but certainly seven years ago. So what has happened in that time is that the money that goes into domestic violence refuges that isn't for support, but is actually for the tenancy, for the the cost of the bed and the roof, which was through housing benefit, has become much more the way that refuges are funded. So that always existed where housing benefit was what paid for the bed and supporting people was what paid for the people to do the job, to look after you and give the counselling and look after the kids and make sure your benefits were right and find you somewhere else to live and find you a job. Now, without any of the support money, many refuges and women's organisations across the country rely very, very heavily on this other pot of money to keep refuges open. So what is being suggested at the moment is to remove that pot of money and put it and and they're saying that they're not cutting it, but to to organise it in a different way where local authorities get a say on it. So the money doesn't follow the woman anymore. Does the government have a kind of a, a plan in place to stop closures happening or is this a kind of an in, unintended consequence of their changes? In rhetoric alone, they have a plan. They keep on saying no person turned away as the sort of tagline of everything when they talk about domestic abuse. However, at the moment, two thirds of women are already turned away. We're already turning that many away every single day. So it is nothing but a platitude. So I would like to see that they have a plan in this, what I think is good intentions. They're trying to create a new system whereby supported living is taken out of the welfare budget and therefore it isn't as precarious to welfare cuts. So I can see the intention, but at the moment it is just a plan without proper thought or understanding of actually what will happen on the ground and that will be closures. And is is this, do you think, just partly because it's been overlooked rather than specific? I I know, Jess, you wrote uh, around the time of the budget that Treasury ministers had declined to come to the Women and Equality Select Committee to answer questions about how welfare cuts disproportionately affect women. Obviously, Alison, you're on the Treasury Select Committee. I mean, has there been any movement? Have have ministers been to to answer questions yet? No. (laughs) And and in truth... What's happened on the Treasury Select Committee is basically a feminist takeover. Um, so Nikki Morgan's the chair, who Tory though she is, you know, sort of gets some of these issues. But um, Rushnara, Ali, Kat McKinnell um, and I have essentially sort of said, like, look, we, we know this background that they haven't really responded to the Women Equalities, Women and Equalities Committee, but they don't really have any choice about coming to Treasury Select Committee. So we've got a bit of progress, but... There's two problems here. Firstly, that most people don't probably don't really want to think about the refuge in their area. So when it comes to kind of council tax and when it comes to thinking about what their local council is or isn't funding or 
it's not going to be as nice a thing to campaign for as, you know, benefits for children with disabilities. Important though that is, you know, nobody really wants to think that we need refuges. And the other thing is that the problem is at the centre with the Treasury and they they just don't think it's their issue. You know, mm. they just... So we've got a, a few steps further on the Treasury Select Committee, but we have a long way to go to get people to see that these issues, because it's about money, you know, I don't care who you are in the Treasury, this is your job to get this right. And I don't care if you think your job is about, you know, medium-term financial strategy or the macroeconomic forecasts of our country this is your job yeah i think that the trouble is is that the people element of the job of the treasury is seems totally lost on them it has always been the area of policy led by the home office the domestic violence and that Mm. that's that's a historical fact but you know when the home office is also dealing in you know your police cuts and everything to do with immigration it is everybody's favourite thing to talk about domestic abuse services. Every Home Secretary loves it and wants it to be the thing that they are defined for. But what we need is somebody with the cash to care about being defined for it. And the Treasury is incredibly sort of male, pale and stale to the point that they don't see that it's their responsibility. And the vast majority of domestic violence funding in the UK has absolutely naffle to do with the Home Office. In fact, they are a t- they're probably around 5% of the spend on domestic abuse. It is almost exclusively through DCLG and through um, local councils and how that is funded. So the fact that the policy and the thinking all sits in one department, yet all of the money sits in another, has always led to a fractured system. And can I ask the kind of progress that maybe has been made on this issue, at what point has it come? Because I, I was, I literally rang my mum on the way here because um, she set up um, a refuge in Blackburn um, around the, well, when she was pregnant with me, in fact, um, and she told me that uh, she went in for an examination and was told, oh, you've gone into labour, you can't leave the hospital now. But she had um, letters that she was delivering by hand to people that they wanted to invite to be on the steering committee because essentially a group of women had got together to set up this refuge, but they didn't know anything about how you go about getting the funding for it or how you actually do it. And so they needed people to come onto the steering committee who had a bit of idea about how you get the money for it. Uh, And it was her job to go around delivering the letters. And so she refused to be taken into (laughs) to stay in the hospital so that she could go and deliver these letters, which... She sounds amazing. You know, obviously I'm incredibly proud of my mum, but also feel that possibly she shouldn't have really had to have done that. Although that does sound still like what is happening in women's refuges today there's many a story i mean my old boss sarah she did all of our um the payroll for the entire organization whilst in labor (laughs) so uh, it's i think women who work in this field just think that they could just have babies at the same time as running uh, refuges but this is exactly right the women's movement is exactly as you have described it was essentially a group of women who put a mattress in a squat and invited people to come in and has it, it is one of the greatest grassroots revolutions that now is an accepted part of government policy was something that was just started by these these women who just knew that they had to do something and exactly as you have described it was as professional as that and some of that is missing from it now 
in lots of ways. We, I think there is a risk that we have over-professionalised some of the love and the heart and now in a commissioning environment where every, you know, you have to have the bottom line and value for money and all of that means that really generic providers are now seeking contracts for domestic violence services. Um, in, in my own constituency, somebody has put in an application to change of use of a building and they say we're going to have supported accommodation for victims of domestic violence, for uh, young offenders. And it's like putting everybody as if yeah. all people with all problems can all just live in the same house. And that is, to- it's dangerous and it's totally unacceptable. But that is what sort of professionalising and funding has essentially done to the the service the thing that really worries me about this jess is that when i was when i was looking into things and i used to work um for kind of several charities and organizations that that worked around these issues i was in fact once in a meeting with you many many years ago before you were selected um but one of the things as well is that you don't then get the specialist care that you need as an individual and it's that idea that like we know of course that when it comes to domestic abuse male violence against women is by far and large the most common type of abuse that we see within domestic you know within domestic abuse services but you know you look at things like the lgbt community for example obviously you know i do a lot with with lgbt labor specifically but like one in four lesbian and bisexual women have experienced domestic abuse like almost half of gay and bisexual men have experienced one incident of domestic abuse from a family or parent and like there's so little research on on kind of trans domestic abuse but of that that there is over 80 percent of trans people have experienced domestic abuse and there is not a single lgbt specific refuge in the entirety of england i think there is is there yeah uh, i think that there is um i th- i know that there is definitely eight bed spaces that you can refer to so this uh, is it but so that's only eight bed spaces that's within specialist support so that's it so yeah there is, and in birmingham there is some areas within specialist support yeah but of a wider context of some like the the funding that sits within that and that's the problem isn't it is that when you look at the level of cuts that these services are facing and the way that they're commissioned. Oh, yeah, the specialism the, goes... The specialism just disappears It's not just... The, the concern is not just around uh, the sort of different... So LGBT being a good example of something that is grossly underfunded. Mm. Um, Women with disabilities. Women with disabilities, there is almost hardly any bed spaces. But all of the BME uh, women's services Mm -hmm. that used to be a thriving... Organ, group of organisations all are now facing the cuts and big organisations think oh well yeah we can just do it Asian yeah. women are the same and yeah. it's just like well no actually you do need specialist services yeah. to make sure you get a specialist response and people feel more comfortable with those services so that has been again another example of how the sort of commissioning and the cutting the cloth has basically eroded really specialist and responsive services. But um, in Birmingham, we fought to have a specific LGBT um, domestic abuse service commissioned when I was a councillor there. So we do at least have specialist independent domestic violence advisors specifically for the LGBT community. And it sits within the LGBT centre, which is down the road from the women's aid. And they all work very, very closely together. But I think it's still, it's one of like three examples in the country. So just to kind of be really basic for a second, if I may, because this is like, like I'm quite, I like, I'm happy talking about the funding, but the, the, the actual service provision itself is not really my specialist subject to the extent that 
I was really shocked, Jess, when I went to our local refuge, which is, you know, amazing. Uh, most people in the world wouldn't have a clue where it was or that it even exists, rightly so. But it is amazing. I was really shocked at how, un- I don't know, like wrong word, but like unglamorous. Like it really, what really pained me the most was how little excess there was, you no, know, like, yeah. like it, it shook me that, women going there would have gone through the most vulnerable time in their life. You know, in fact, I was pregnant when I first went to visit it. And I remember the woman from the refuge saying to me, oh, you're pregnant, congratulations. You've just doubled or trebled your yeah. risk yeah. of... Being killed. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. and I was like really sh- shaken by it because I thought, goodness, I didn't even know that. You know, I'm supposed to be a member of parliament. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that how basic the kind of showering and bathroom facilities would be, how hard they had worked to get, you know, toys and stuff for the kids. And that all seemed like a massive struggle. And I guess people might just not know, like, actually what a refuge is like. Yeah. You know, do you find, like, that you sort of have to remind people that this is not, you know, <laughs> I, I, would, I, I would say very much sub travel lodge yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean and they they are different all over the country yeah. um but yeah this is not this is no frills and what i think is the the most um alarming thing for people when they first go into refuge is that women and children are in a room together there is no you know so I ran a variety of different um refuges some that was like old converted houses where people were living much more communally shared kitchens and that sort of thing um and but still the women would share the room with their children and then um more self-contained flats and things which were lots and lots of small flats around a central atrium um but again the women and children and this was you we had we had rooms that would sleep a woman with eight children wow uh, all in one room and then they would have a small kitchen and uh, a small living room as well but by and large yeah this is not this is not somewhere that you you would be able to stay long term that you would want to stay long term no matter how brilliant and welcoming and kind a place it might be and there is a big move now as well to try and get individual homes in the community um for that are refuges that are sort of self-contained because for example people who people won't leave if they can't take their pets with them sometimes yeah, well, like fair enough really. yeah totally i mean i don't have a pet so i used I to either, i used I to feel a little bit like really the yeah. dog but people really love their dogs but it's that mental health thing isn't yeah, it? yeah absolutely but also your teenage son yeah. There's quite a lot of, so refuges, because of having a sort of no men's rule, and I think it's boys over the age of 14, it's, and if you have a teenage son, you're not going to leave him. Yeah. So, uh, but so we had five separate houses in the community so that that could be overcome, both the, yeah. the pets thing and also the teenage boys thing. But also, I mean, I'm going to sort of like just bang on slightly about my hobby horse, which is also money to help the police or whoever or whichever authorities so that they can get the abuser to leave, to be the one who leaves and making the person's home secure. Well, yeah, sorry, on that kind of note, I remember speaking to someone um, about food banks a couple of years ago and they told me actually one of the things that is really important to put in a food bank collection is stuff like tin openers because actually so often what is happening is that the person who needs the, the food bank um, has actually had to leave their own home because of domestic violence or something like that. And so they don't have kitchen appliances with them. Mm. And so it's great to have tin food, yeah. but if you can't open it, then... It's useless. Yeah. 
it's also it seems to be it's utterly symptomatic of so much of what we see in terms of society at the moment like the platitude as you say that people will give and it is so well intentioned in so many ways and we're seeing that we see that across politics and society in terms of the way that women are treated like the platitudes of everybody going isn't it awful and then but when it actually comes to doing something about it and actually having to like put the work in or put the money in um and actually look at this as a much wider problem of all of the different parts that it encompasses funnily enough it just seems to just seems to slip right off the radar there and the police i think are desperate to be able to do some of that getting the perpetrator out and leaving the woman and her children usually in the home but at the moment there just isn't the resource while there isn't also essentially like I suppose a sin bin other than a prison to put the perpetrator and what you will find uh, nine times out of ten in all the cases that I've dealt with was that if the perpetrator isn't housed also has a job has all of those sort of social things that are respectable in place the likelihood is is that the woman will feel guilty and let uh, let him back in and if he's homeless and he's kicked out he'll be knocking on her door but there has got to be a change of the burden being on the woman and children to leave there has got to be some way you know we put a man on the moon we have got to be able to come up with a solution for the future that doesn't just see women having to flee is is that um can i just ask would that be a legislative change that you you can imagine it, it the legislation the, the legislation at the moment actually isn't that bad on it so there's a thing called a go order which was uh, the coalition government i believe brought in it's probably not called a go order that's what we called it in the field <laughs> uh, there are other things that Some we sort of legal the, order uh, yeah uh, so it's a go order which basically gives the um when a woman rings the police and the police can remove uh, the perpetrator for, I think it was 48 hours while they can then go in and get statements, gather evidence. The trouble is, is that will only ever work if at the same time as they get him to go away, if he does come back and he's banging on her door, that there is a power of arrest. And it's not just that the power of arrest exists is that it is acted upon. Every single civil order that I know about, whether that's a non-molestation order, a restraining order, a go order, all of those are worthless unless the police actually have the resources to react when people report them. I don't know a single woman who has had one of those orders that was effective that when he contacted her on Facebook or contacted her kids on Facebook or came round to where she worked that and she called the police, that anything changed. At the moment, we desperately need to look at strengthening those orders. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the legislation is there in all of these cases. The resources to actually tackle it aren't. On the legislation point, though, is there is there anything that could be coming up that could change this? I know there's a domestic violence bill coming up, and and recently in Scotland, I think psychological abuse has been taken into account in these cases. Is, is are those kind of areas that we could look at as as being some changes? Well, we well we can only hope so, but at the moment, it's I, I just don't know because. It has been put off the domestic abuse bill. We're, we're still waiting for the consultation, which we hope will come in February. Um, Do you think this is part of the kind of Brexit bandwidth problem? A totally, so, it's a Brexit bandwidth problem. There's if, no two ways about that. Even stuff that was trumpeted in the Queen's speech, mm-hmm. like the domestic violence bill, 
now has just fallen off the agenda because totally. because all of the ministers, secretaries of state are just busy, you know, yeah, asking I mean, about with Brexit. We, we were about to really change something and it would have genuinely changed and was already starting to work. And I had victims contacting me and thanking us for the work that we had done around trying to stop perpetrators of domestic abuse in the family courts cross-examining victims because in an era where there's no legal aid um, most people now going through the civil courts go as litigants in per- person so they represent themselves Just which a means a total it's a nightmare. nightmare it's shameful it's yeah. so, so shameful this it is means that if you are a convicted perpetrator of domestic abuse and your wife is trying to stop your ex-wife is trying to stop you having access to the children because you are dangerous uh, that you can cross-examine her in court which means you know the person you are most scared of, the person who has controlled you, is allowed to ask you about your worst fears, your tap into your worst nightmares. And you women give up because they just say, okay, fine, I don't want to go through with that yeah. so he can have the children for this weekend. And we see all sorts of horrible cases where children end up, in the worst cases, dead. And we were about to change that in the courts and prisons bill before the last general election, which was going through cross-party approval, all of the amendments had been put in and agreed to, and it was a real success. It would have genuinely changed lives. The election gets called, it falls, and when I've asked if it's coming back, the answer is no. It's like the massive opportunity cost of this mess that our country's got itself into is huge, and it feels to me a, a shame on many other subjects, but on this in particular... I mean, how hard it would be. Like, we've got cross-party support. We yeah. can legislate in a day. I keep saying, put me on an SI. I'll sit on SIs for the rest of my life. Sorry, statutory instruments. Secondary legislation. So, yeah. So, I will just sit all day yeah. going over the legislation and saying, yes, I know, yeah, whatever. I mean, Quick, let's get it done. If, if the whips sorted it out, we could have a committee of women MPs to do it literally in five minutes yeah. and we could get it through and you know I'm sure we've got some sisters in the Lords who'd whip it through there as well oh absolutely like, but this is li- the problem with all of this is nobody's got any attention span for anything other than no. Brexit there is no political capital left in the building for people to push for anything everybody with any power is using up their political capital for what seemingly their own ends at the moment and it is, uh, you know, it is a curse on our all our houses, yeah. frankly. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but Steph, I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about the difference between platitudes and actions. Um, because I wonder with, obviously, the last few months in media and, uh, you know, over the weekend, incredibly famous actor Uma Thurman was talking about the abuse that she'd suffered from director Quentin Tarantino. And and so actually there was a much better awareness of this kind of stuff than possibly there was a few months ago. But do you really think that the platitudes of we need to get something done are as accepted as you said? Because I was um, on telly on Monday morning, there was a Karen and Gala Smith from the Counting Dead Women group, which, uh, you know, does what it says. Yeah, exactly. Publicised the fact that, um, you know, 138 women were killed by men in domestic violence incidents in this country last year. But she was repeatedly spoken over and essentially told that the argument that she was making that, you know, all men were terrible and, hey, that's not really the point. So do you think that actually 
the, the, it is true about people accepting the platitudes or actually do we still need to kind of really push that conversation quite a bit? No, I mean, I think there are there are swathes of people who spend their lives doing the most inspiring and difficult work to help what are some of the most vulnerable and abused people in our society. And there is certainly, particularly within the Westminster bubble, a real want from from lots of people on both sides of, of the chamber to, to actually get things done. But as we say, like, it hasn't happened. Like, these things haven't changed. And when the difficult questions come of what's going to get funded and what isn't, they don't think, like, these women won't win them any elections. They won't win them votes. And it's the really shameful part of politics, actually, when it comes to, it's not about doing the right thing. It's about keeping yourself in power. Um, and the thing is, actually, we see that far too often in far too many ways. Um, I sound right, right on at the moment, don't I? But, <laughs> you, but, you, you go, sister. But no, but like, it genuinely infuriates me. And you see so many situations around politics where like the difference is, is they will have to give up, like some men will have to give up their political power and some people will have to give up the money that goes to things that they quite like and are quite nice services to stop women from dying at the hands of their partners. And it genuinely is as simple as that. And the problem is until the money is there, the services are there, it will keep going on. But Jess, what could, if, if we could spend uh, half a billion a year on... <laughs> Ali's favourite game. Women's, <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> You know, what What could we get in terms of domestic violence support if I had a half a billion um, in my cheeky half I mean, you could, you could secure the bed spaces for refuge accommodation with... We could stop turning people away. We could stop turning people away. We could invest in even more flexible and different sorts of accommodation to allow as many people to escape as possible. You could invest in the infrastructure for people who don't leave necessarily um who need support in the community um and aren't in refuge and that is the vast majority of support services are geared towards actually that that's very very few women end up in refuge it is about trying to get people to be safe um so for half a billion you could get both of those things the thing that will cost the money that will cost a lot of money and um, is going to take a lot of political will is the issue of the policing is yeah. making really specialist forces and really, really specialist court system, which we used to have much better through the CPS. Um, we need to invest in that, but whether you'd get that for half a billion, if you wanted everything. So, so this is just my weekly reminder for everyone that in November, the chancellor spent half a billion per year three and a half billion over the forecast period on making it cheaper for people to buy houses. Yeah, not people where I live because no, no house is that much money. And, where and, I live. Yeah, well, exactly. I think where I live, all the houses are far too much money. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I'll be, anyway. I've written that. <laughs> <laughs> this is an offer to come to the People's move Republic to, of Birmingham. Move to Birmingham. <laughs> Um, I think we probably do need to leave that conversation there. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for coming on today, Jess. Uh, that was great. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question with the answer revealed on Friday's show. And my question this week is, which Labour MP was a chorister at Southwark Cathedral I in should, London? I should really know this. I, you I, don't as, know this. As an ex-councillor in the London Borough of Southwark, the proud borough of Southwark, <laughs> 
I should know this, but I haven't got a clue. I hope you go around your colleagues this week and start asking them, all of them, who who it might be. I'm just going to hum Handel's Messiah and see who joins <laughs> in. If you know the answer, and like Alison, uh, do send your answers to at Connor Pope on Twitter or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a Progress mug when the answer is announced on Friday morning. Uh, we need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Jess joining us today. Send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review. And me and Stephanie will be responding to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast mm-hmm.